0: We are hosting episode three today of Talk In Their Language. We have a fantastic guest for you, Robert Sharples, author of Teaching EAL, Evidence-Based Strategies for the Classroom and School. Um, Hi, Robert. It's great to have you here today. How are you? And could you give us a bit of a background? Hi, Helen.
1: Yeah, really lovely to be here. So my day job is as a university lecturer. I do research and I teach in the area of multilingual education. Uh, But I think the reason we're talking is because of this uh, book And the book is, for me, it's an attempt to put that research evidence at the service of practice. It just became so clear over the years, and particularly in the lead up to the pandemic, that people were were crying out f- to understand more about why things worked and what could work better in their classrooms, but were stymied because so much of the evidence was inaccessible. It was in really high-priced journals that were really hard to get hold of, or, or you had to pay to go to expensive conferences to meet academics. And I, I wanted to create a bit of a middle ground. I'm not the only one doing it. Of course, loads of us are, uh, are trying, but but the book was my contribution to it, and it's just been terrific that people are interested in in using evidence to to inform their teaching in EAL.
0: Fantastic! Um, I do find it's really um, accessible and easy to use, and I'm loving the way it's got the over at the end you know, way so it's sort of next steps isn't it and um you know yeah I'm glad you
1: like it I had had an academic colleague who um who picked up a copy book and said wow 24 chapters thinking that each one was like a full-length academic paper and I didn't have the heart to tell him that they're only (laughs) they're only you know 10 pages each or something 2,000 words (laughs) because they're meant to be you know you should be able to read a chapter in, in your lunch break or maybe skim it in a break with kids coming in and out the door and so on it's it it should be that you can you can drop in you can get something useful you can use it and and all of that hopefully without sacrificing the um like the academic quality that you need.
0: No fantastic you know I found that definitely. Um so you talk about the five evidence based principles for developing language across the curriculum. Could you explain those to our listeners and how these can be used to support learners with English? Yeah, and
1: absolutely. Language? So so I was looking for a way to to just bring this incredible diversity and breadth of the interdisciplinary evidence base that EAL rests on into into a few short principles that people could sort of just use in in their day-to-day work. So I I settled on these five and I, I think of each of one each of them as a as a really good starting point that can help to frame your thinking but of course as as you go into this you'll go way beyond them as well. So the first one is this idea that language and concepts are organized in disciplines. And that's going to work differently in primary and secondary because the you know, we have subjects work differently uh, in different phases of the curriculum. But this idea that being doing science in primary and doing science in secondary and doing science in university, there's this continuity that runs all the way through them that's really, really important. And the ways of using language and the ways we develop knowledge and the ways that we develop practices as well. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, really are organised by subject disciplines. And I think you've got to, you've got to really develop your, your disciplinary or subject expertise in school if you're going to go on to what you want to do next. Too often, I think, we think of academic language as something really general. That if you get, a, if you get academic language okay. in general, then kids will be fine across the curriculum. And there's two problems with that. One is I don't think that's how it really works, so it holds children back. But also it leaves all the responsibility on the shoulders of the person who's doing EAL. And it doesn't leave a lot of space for subject teachers or, or class teachers to say, right, this is how my work connects with language development for all pupils. So the idea that, that idea that language and concepts are organized in disciplines, I think, is really practically important to how we organize language support in schools. The second principle was about how um, you can scaffold language to support learning. And again, I'm, um, you know. The book's not just written for, for people who identify themselves as EL specialists, or <clears throat> I talk in a book about being EL interested as a nice halfway house. So, all teachers yeah. can be supporting language for all pupils. And I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, you should know how language works in your subjects, how language works in your classroom. And as an EL specialist, you should know how language works across the curriculum. So, it's really important to, to I guess, reassure people that. Focusing on language in the classroom, making the language of the subject explicit, giving people framings and and ways into writing and talking at at greater length and complexity. That's something we do for all students. We need to do it perhaps in particular ways and and, uh, maybe to a greater extent with bilingual pupils, but there's some really interesting evidence emerging that when we do, when we have a relatively high number of bilingual pupils in the classroom, the monolingual pupils benefit as well. And I think that kind of emerging evidence is is really valuable because it just tells us that in a in a multilingual classroom teachers are taking the time to really make language explicit and transparent and to build up pupils abilities to communicate and of course that benefits everyone.
0: Yeah, that's brilliant. I've done a
1: lot of work on um, closing yeah. the vocabulary gap, you know, brilliant. Yes, yes, work, brilliant book. Which is similar. Yeah. To yeah. Well, that, that was the third word. principle. We're really informed yeah. by by work like that is that if you're going to do anything, prioritise vocabulary. And that's not just keywords, though. Um, it's not just about uh, translations. It's about showing how that language works in context. So one really simple way of doing this is take a, take a BBC bite-sized GCSE. I, I, I looked a lot at one of the ones on... Um, volcanoes, um, which I, I don't have any knowledge of um, except what I learned in school myself. So I, I was trying to you know, pick a few things to test out some of the ideas. And of course, you've got such incredible richness. You've got diagrams. You've got text. You've got discussion. You've got um, activities like labeling and sorting and explaining. So there's what seems initially really simple is, is really complex. But what students are learning to do is to use language that is phrases, that's patterns, that's how we organize scientific write-ups and explanatory texts um, in context. So if we're going to do anything, we should really push hard on vocabulary, um, breadth and depth, and using it in lots of different contexts. Because we know that for all pupils, vocabulary underpins learning and attainment in the curriculum. That, that's not just EAL pupils. But of course, EAL pupils need that um, to a much greater extent. And, and linked to that, um, the idea of, of just talk before writing. Um that talk doesn't have to be in English, of course. And, and we know that if we support children to develop their literacy in their first languages, that will support their literacy in, in English. So one of the big messages from this is it's not a zero-sum game. There's not a competition between doing things in English and supporting their other languages. Between focusing on language and focusing on content, they're all mutually reinforcing. And if we have time to develop our ideas orally, then we're going to get much, much better written production from our students. And then the, the final p- principle that I came up with is just learning is collaborative. And and that's a real push I think towards uh, mainstreaming pupils as early as possible. One of the big questions that always comes up is should I withdraw? Should I mainstream? What decisions do I make in the middle yes. to try and to try and support children? And and the answer is withdrawal personally I believe and it's controversial but but personally I I think the evidence says to me that sometimes withdrawal is necessary but it has to be time-limited. It has to have clear goals. It has to have a clear, clear curricular focus. It's got to build in as much curriculum language as possible. It's got to be really purposeful withdrawal to support children in the classroom because in the classroom, that's where they're going to be collaborating with peers. That's where they're going to have, you know, the real subject expert and so on. Yeah, so that so the idea that, that learning happens in disciplines, but also in communities in the classroom, I think is... Those are the five points I thought if... if nothing else those are really going to um set you up for really good at practice
0: yeah i think that's an amazing place to start um i know there's a fear sometimes isn't there of letting those students speak in their own languages but there's um so much evidence to suggest it helps you know students yeah learn, i i, it? I
1: the, the the sort of killer comeback always seems to be but what if there's bullying and i think well there's two responses to that number one i've net, yeah. never met a teacher who couldn't tell at a hundred paces if bullying was happening <laughs> you know if if, if one kid's up against the wall and two others are right in their face it doesn't matter what language and you know bullying is happening but the other thing as well is a lot of the time bullying happens out of your sight so when it's in your sight actually language probably isn't it you can see the effects on children you can you can see from body language and tone and everything else and sometimes you we misread it but it's easily clarified but a lot of time it happens away from um, what the teacher can see. And in that context, I think it's it's really important that children feel they can, they can talk to you and they can talk in general in whatever languages they have available. From a safeguarding perspective, if we want children to be able to make disclosures, if we want children to have a trusting relationship with adults, it can't start from a place where we say your voice is only welcome in a language that you find difficult. It's only welcome when you have proficiency. Yeah. So, Yes, there's this fear. And, and I think it's, first of all, I, before that, I'd say the fear that teachers feel about it is legitimate, and it's real. And it's based on um, people's desire to, to do a, a good job for the children they work with. But it's nothing compared with the fear that the children feel. And 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 trying to make yourself heard and trying to follow the curriculum in a new language. The second one is, um, I think we've, we've got a responsibility not only to to, to give children access to that broad and balanced curriculum uh, in all its richness. But also, I think there's a major safeguarding issue here that if we only accept people's voices in English, we're not going to hear the things they really feel they need to tell us. So I would say embrace the challenge. And in the book, up there's a brilliant project in uh, New York State in the US, um, which has generated a lot of videos and, and other materials. It's very American-focused, but I, I pick up on a few examples in, in one of the activities in the book where it says, how to teach bilinguals if you're not one. And, and the teacher talks really explicitly there about, yeah. listen, it's, it, it's, it isn't scary because I feel like I'm, I'm giving up my professional responsibility when I let pupils talk in a way that I don't understand. I think it's a, it's a question of reframing it and, and just having the confidence to know that the evidence is behind you. If you want to, if you want to engage with children's languages, even if yeah. you don't speak them, the evidence is with you to, to support you to do a really, really good job.
0: Fantastic. Um, Teachers play a vital role in promoting language-rich teaching across the curriculum, as you've spoken about, Um, and it's so important to close the vocabulary gap. So what advice and guidance would you give to teachers that may not be English specialists? I know you've touched on it with the volcanoes. What other advice might you give? Yeah,
1: so I guess it depends what we mean by um, English specialists. So you you have English as in English language and literature. Um, And I think English teachers... Are often seen as the per- people to to focus on language itself, um, and and often very happy to take on that role. But I think it's a missed opportunity, really, because every subject has its own way of using language, um, and and actually, English teachers aren't necessarily. Um, best place to understand how language works in science. It's often a common example in mathematics. But also, what about PE? I mean, PE teachers have a really important role to play in developing pupils' language because language in PE is, is, I'll use an academic phrase, it's, it's um, embodied. Uh, but, but in practical terms, you know, you, you're using language while you're doing something. And it's much more complex, I think, than most of us uh, give credit to when we look at um so there's um some brilliant work by Pauline gibbons that that i I talk about and inform my own thinking i'm sure a lot of people would have heard of her work as well um so she talks about um a continuum from um children talking about themselves while they do an experiment and it's with a magnet and iron filing so it's in a science science lesson um and then um so talking about it in class then trying to write up what they found and then the fourth example is from a children's encyclopedia about the same process Um, and it moves from being oh look that just moves oh what's that doing why why are you hang on pick that up and where you know it's all context dependent right up to um this children's science encyclopedia where it's talking about ferrous metals so it's using these bigger kind of category names and process names and so on so PE, I think, is is often missed as as the link between that, where um, language and action together, that happens in a science classroom. That happens in the English classroom. It happens massively in PE. Um, but it also links those bigger processes and, and being able to talk about you know the rules of the game, but also the, the concepts that lie behind a lot of it. There's, there's how we play, there's sportsmanship. There's, um, there's so much more connected to... Um, to what happens in a PE lesson. We see that writ through the whole curriculum. So long story short, I think every teacher has a really, really valuable role to play in in developing language across the curriculum. If you don't see yourself as an English teacher, that is absolutely no bar. I'd say, are you a teacher who's interested in what language does in your subject and wants to develop that with children? I mean, I would love to be in a world where that was just part of, of initial teacher education and professional development all the way through where often actually understood it Shut and up. asked about it where and I I imagine with podcast and I know with you had it, I'd be slightly preaching to the choir but language is a core part of subject disciplines and and subject teaching and and class teaching children do less well in assessments and, and you know the life chances that the assessments give them qualifications give them if they can't grasp the language of their subject if it's not made explicit and transparent. So, a really common example that we see and that, that people often get in touch to ask about is where you've got a very settled bilingual community. So, you've got a large number of, for example, Punjabi speaking children or Polish speaking children whose families are settled here. They're coming through the education system and they do less well than other children. And one of, particularly in primary, but also in secondary, one of the possible causes of that is that we stop focusing on language when they sound fluent, which happens quite early on. So the children might enter primary, perhaps not having used English very much um, in the home, but very quickly sound sound bilingual. And then we stop making the language of the curriculum explicit. And and what happens is that the higher order thinking skills and and, um, communication skills that you need to get top marks um, at the end of each key stage, aren't f- as fully developed because we don't think so. We just say, Well, they, yeah,
0: that's you it, have that it's the
1: vocabulary gap, gap in it, and it, and it's also a conceptual gap because your language and, and your ability to do things with it develop in tandem. So, so a really good example of this is, yeah. is sentence starters sentence stems and and, uh, writing frames up to a certain point they're vital because they scaffold people's developing language abilities but after a certain point they become a constraint because we don't ask monolingual children to start every sentence the same way we don't only give them one or two ways of structuring a text but with bilingual children we often do so
0: sometimes yeah it
1: really does and it stifles the teacher's creativity as well
0: um thank you for that uh we'd like to focus on um eal leads mm. in schools i know on our facebook group we have a lot of um new sort of specialists to the role um and they're always asking for advice so what's your advice for lead practitioners who might be just starting out yeah in this position? I, I
1: suppose i should say uh do go and buy the book because um a full third of the book is written to answer exactly that question <laughs> but um okay so um what i've tried to set out is um It's a bit of a a process, a bit of a structure for doing this because it's such an important question that there's no guidance and policy really around EAL anymore. Um, You take on the responsibility. No, and I
0: think it can be overwhelming. Totally overwhelming,
1: yeah. And and also you're often in an environment where other people don't recognise that it's a legitimate specialism. And I think we need to to be very clear about why that's happened. That's because of a series of policy decisions that started in 2010 to deprofessionalise EAL. Um, partly because it was linked to um, uh, immigration and the debates around immigration 10 or more years ago, and um, partly because we've got policymakers who really don't know what like modern diverse classrooms look like, that, that have a very particular view of what it's like to be a um, a migrant and it tends to be people who are moving professionally with quite high status and so on um and i think we've just got this this gap in in what they know and understand and and you know it leads to decisions that that are not supportable uh, if you're in the classroom but but which do make sense in a, a sort of think tanky bubble somewhere um so the first thing to to recognize is that we're in a particular historical period and forgive me for going a bit around the houses with this but i, I do believe it's really important we're in a particular yeah, historical period where um eal is is deprofessionalized at a, at a system level where where guidance has been actively withdrawn not just the new guidance hasn't been offered it's been actively withdrawn that that with every iteration of the ofsted yeah. inspection framework for example it's been stripped out and and there's only a couple of mentions now in the ite inspection framework because people have fought desperate rearguard actions to keep it in there um and, and it's minimal
0: and therefore financially um
1: it's a struggle Abs- as well, well as i i don't know because i think it's i think it's a cross-curriculum thing that that all teachers should be engaged in so um i would argue you don't actually necessarily need to hire tons and tons of teachers and teaching assistants to address it because i think it's something you should be equipping your your whole staff to do but you know i, I get a bit utopian yeah. sometimes so if we go back to to 2008, 2009, there was a really big workforce development project done. And and that set out a professional development framework for EAL. It, it did a big review of the evidence. What do we know? Where do we need to go? That was published in 2009. And then when the new government came in, it was just stopped and, and chucked out. So um, becoming an, an EAL specialist, taking on that lead practitioner role now is a particularly difficult job. Because you're doing it in a bit more of a vacuum. And what's growing now in its place are really, really wonderful things like Twinkle Yale, like uh, Twitter, uh, like academics like myself who, who are really trying to contribute to that as well, where it's much more community based. So the first thing you need to do as an Yale or anyone who's interested in Yale is find your tribe, find your community. And I think. You know, you've you've got yeah. to join your your professional organisation, which in um, England and Wales is, is Naldic. In Scotland, um, although Naldic is is active there, it's uh, Satil. To be part of that community, go to local groups, get on Twitter, um, yeah, you know, join the Facebook groups around around EAL. Just have your professional community because you probably won't get it you, if you're part of one of the bigger mats. You might, but but it, you know, most of them um, don't. So. Just be reassured that even if you hear messages saying that, oh, it's, you know, what's the difference from EL and SCN, or this isn't particularly important, or is this the, this is your job as the EL person? It's not my job as the class or subject teacher. That's uh, a historical nonsense, and you should um, smile and nod. and And if you get particularly frustrated, I recommend um, uh, well, thwacking whoever it is with a wet haddock that seems to sort of relieve a lot of tension. <laughs> I don't mean to be glib, but I think I think we should be able to laugh at it to a certain extent because um this this will come around again and and you know things like this are a small contributions to turning it around so with that uh hope hopefully uh, that that reassurance and confidence that that you are there is a community there that you are part of it that the work you do is absolutely crucial not just for bilingual children but actually for all children across the across the whole school um. With that armor on, as it were, then then let's think of your of your armory. And I think the first thing to do is to start by looking at what's happening in your school. Where are the policies around EL? Who line manages you, and so on? Um, you you are unlikely to have an EL specialist or a language specialist as your line manager, but they should know enough to hold you to account because that's that's part of your professionalism. That that um, your work is open scrutiny. That that people can. Um, can hold your account for it because you confidently do really good work so so that that becomes really important and, and I talk about the kind of policies you could look with in the book there's a checklist and then you think about right what do I want to do where do I want to go what what, what should it feel like in one three five years time um, what outcomes do I want to to see for my children both in terms of, of assessments but also in terms of the culture of the school and so on that gives you your, your points on the horizon to work for and then I suggest you turn to what happens when the children arrive. So then I'd suggest you look at the the trajectory, really, of a child from when they arrive, which will be unique to your school. You might have a very well-settled bilingual community where all your EL children arrive in reception, for example, and then arrive in year seven. You might be a school with a high degree of mid-year arrivals and perhaps midway through phase arrivals. Um, You know... The demographics of your school and, and the dimensions of your job will be different for everybody. But have a look at where do pupils come in? What happens to them? Who assesses their language level? Do you have a language assessment? How do they know they're welcome? Who gets to talk to the parents and the families and really understand what they need? Do you have um, a fact sheet for them? How does that information get shared with other teachers? How does it filter its way slowly into the classroom? And, and again, you know, there, there's a really clear plan of things to look for there. There's a reason, though, that I say we want to pick up on the children third and it's because i worry that the urgent can really crowd out the important that we end up in this firefighting situation where um, you're always focusing on on children with the greatest need and and those children who need that sustained support to reach the highest levels to reflect our our ambitions for them they don't get the time so I, I won't pretend that as that a new EL specialist in a school where there wasn't one before or perhaps or where, where EL is not that well developed, I, w- I won't pretend you've not got a mountain to climb. You can, uh, clearly people are talking on the Twinkle Facebook group. Uh, you can also just email me. I'd be happy to talk it through with you um, anytime. It's one of the joys of my job when people do. But but that's the starting point. And then, then you know, the book will take you through steps to to go through all the way up to to really leading practice in your region and, and contributing to the, the evidence base but crucially that's that sense of really believing that what you're doing is crucially important not just to bilingual children but to all children and then um having a set of strategies to understand how that works in your school and then bit by bit to build that community of practice in your school and beyond it to put things in place so that slowly, slowly, slowly you get away from that dependency culture. We often see that you get away from that um, firefighting approach to being able to um, to lead language across the school. And, and I distinguish the role of being an EAL lead and being a language leader, because you can have a lot of people who are leading on language. You don't have to have a particular position for it if people listen to you and see the value in your work then then that's leadership Um, yeah so it's it's a really tough process to build up something new but we're definitely here to help
0: yeah thank you that's brilliant um focus on your book so part two looks at language across the curriculum and you've touched on that a lot today and what I take from it is that EL is not about teaching English, but in fact, when done well, it's about teaching pupils to learn successfully in English. Um, and what can you tell our listeners about language across the curriculum that you haven't already? Yeah, I
1: mean, first of all, thought. I just love how you've put it. And I think that's that's really nailed it. I <laughs> might borrow that. Um, yeah, I, I mean, all, all pupils are learning through the medium of education, which is English, um, In in all but very, very few specialist schools. So if we if we see it as developing people's language, well, what is that language we're trying to develop? We might divide up and say you've got your your everyday social language. Well, actually, you know, they're going to pick that up mostly in the playground. If I'm honest, um, if we if we think of how much talking time kids get in class versus how much they get in the playground, um, that social language is going to come very quickly. So we might need some version of survival English, perhaps um in, in a very time limited sense but but early early on our attention is turning to um what teachers can do specifically which is language and the curriculum so so recognize first of all recognizing that split and actually valuing that the multilingual talk that happens um in the playground in the corridors in the classroom as well often seen as as you know should be speaking english and so on um maybe chatting out of turn actually seeing that as, as really important ways that kids find their place in the school they develop their multilingual um, their language skills that are going to be crucial when they leave the school as well as during that time and I think okay we turn our attention to the classroom so um, every subject area has its own way of using language there are some things in common that that we could teach from a central point say within a school as an, as an EAL team but really I think um, the most powerful way to approach it is by co-teaching. And in co-teaching, studies shift that balance across to um, to subjects and class teachers so that, that they are developing the skills to um, enrich, make transparent, make explicit language um, across the curriculum. Um, I mean, obvi- obviously that, that's easier said than done. I do appreciate that. Um, so things, things that we can do in a really simple way um, Let's help people to make better worksheets because I think everyone worries that that bringing a focus on language into their teaching is going to be more work at a time when you know everyone's already overloaded, and especially.
0: Yeah, I sorry. Find that, um, sorry, when um when I was teaching, feeling secondary, um that a lot of subject teachers such as science, maths, etc., feel like it's an extra burden that literacy is yeah. an extra add-on or the vocabulary is an extra add-on. And it's sort of shifting that focus isn't it and thinking it's part of your teaching it is right I'm, rather than an extra i mean
1: so so let's take a let's take a, a worksheet for x subject it's going to have key concepts and terms on there if you put a simple translation on there that's one step if you um find some way and this is you know informed in by what we know about how children acquire additional languages if you find some way of highlighting how that language is used in context could be as simple as putting it in bold. Um, that's going to enrich it more because that moves from keywords to language in context. If you echo that language in your talk in the classroom, that's really powerful. If you encourage children to use that in their own work, that's it. And we can see actually at no point in asking children to do more and more and doing more and more ourselves, at no point are we adding work. At no point are we saying, right, go and develop six more materials. And I think the, the, the the idea of differentiation is often felt to be, um, you know, a massive extra workload. But I'd say it's all about it's all about teaching smarter. If your teaching is it's informed by the evidence that it, that develops into into just simple, I wouldn't even say practice, simple routines for how you do your existing job, you can make massive gains really quickly um, without really any extra effort. That worksheet is going to get made and it's going to take the same amount of time to make it. So it makes language transparent or it doesn't um, there's loads what i mean a lot of people have had success with things like um google sort of, translate buttons and, and things like that um which are all helpful um, i would always caution though that that we need to be developing children's ability to communicate um, not just to, to pick up keywords and reuse them but but to use language in context and for purpose um, so so I, I just don't I don't find it scary I, I think you need to to know and, and there's some brilliant books I can recommend actually that, that unpack each subject in turn and what the language is in that subject but I just say it's it's not extra work it's a little bit of working smarter it's incredibly rewarding when you do because you immediately see the benefits for the children and you know you take it away from there it's oh, 100%. once it gets going it gets its own momentum and, and as an el person who's trying to encourage your colleagues to, to adopt new ways of working um the first time that starts happening it's an incredible feeling um and and it's one i think i'd encourage everyone to yeah absolutely life changing
0: yeah yeah um we could talk all day about this one. yeah i i so I've got one more um, yeah. question for you, with regarding Ofsted. Um, I know that's a scary word for a lot of our listeners, um, and especially under EAL, as you've talked about, um, you know, those changes that have been made. Um, so, could you talk to our listeners about the inspection process and maybe what to expect from an English as an additional language sort of point
1: yeah. of view? Yeah, so so the inspection process is organised around six stages, um, and this is referring to the the new. EIF or education inspection framework that's come in. So it starts with a planning call with a head teacher. Um, and, and then uh, very soon after we'll be about meeting senior and subject leaders in school. There'll be lesson visits, they want to meet with individual teachers and with pupils, and there'll be some element of work scrutiny. And those are organized into three phases of what they're looking for. So Ofsted are looking at curriculum. The, the new framework is all about curriculum, curriculum intent, curriculum implementation. And then curriculum impact. What is known and remembered. There's perhaps not as much focus on what children can do with that knowledge. Um, but certainly what's known and remembered is crucial, is the is the impact. So meeting senior subject leaders is about um first of all understand the intent and, and how that begins to move into implementation, lesson visits, meetings with teachers about how it's implemented, and then as they meet pupils they want to understand how that implementation moves to impact and, and is seen in the students work so that, that's three parts across six stages and that the problem here is that eal's just not in there so um there's no reason why um ofsted would want to meet with the um eal lead they might do you might have an inspector who's knowledge about knowledgeable about eal but you might not and the problem with it is that if if they don't um you you might be ninety nine or one hundred percent EAL, and the inspectors wouldn't necessarily come and see the EAL lead. They probably will, almost certainly will meet with the senco. By the way, so if that that's one argument for combining those roles. The argument against, of course, is that they're they're distinct specialisms, and and it's hard to have both at the same time. Um, and they're not allowed to look at school data, and and because we don't collect national level proficiency data because we don't ask important questions about children's literacies and migration background and everything else that goes with it. Actually EL pupils are not visible in the national level data that Ofsted inspectors can look at and they're not allowed to look at school level data. They can talk about, if you talk about the impact implementation of the curriculum with reference of, of how you maybe you monitor your implementation, you, you can bring it in sideways, but but the focus is is on the curriculum, and that has a particular challenge for for um, Yale because it it in a structural systematic way it makes those learners invisible. So phone rings. Um, head teacher takes the call. It's Ofsted. We're coming from that moment on they have to be prepared to talk about yeah and you can imagine what a tall order this is so your head teacher should the minute they walk in door needs to be saying and here is how our curriculum intent affects our bilingual pupils here's how we implement it differentiated for our bilingual pupils here's the impact on all our pupils and here's the impact on our bilingual pupils and that has to be echoed really basically by everyone they meet to get it in so there's no substantial way and there's some little ones but there's no substantial way for um Ofsted inspectors to get a clear view of of EAL before they arrive and there's no obligation for them to come and uh, talk to you as an EAL specialist because um you know it's not a curriculum subject in that sense it's a cross curricular discipline so um basically everyone has to be shouting about EAL when the inspectors come for you to get it in and um that's that's a really really tall order but it but again speaks to how um good el practice in in the sort of bonkers modern world we live in it has to be a whole school endeavor it's just not sustainable for it to be um to be one person or a small team of people trying to support learners in in a world that is just increasingly multilingual and increasingly mobile it's not the way you know we've had a few things happen in the last few years uh, but the world is not getting more disconnected um as a as a rule so we know this is definitely a a growth area i would say in the book one thing i do list is is from um um i think one of your earlier um uh podcastees i suppose i should call it so um jonathan byfield wrote a blog post because his school was inspected and they did come and talk to him and he talked about the things that um that office inspectors actually asked and what what luck that you have Uh, you know a real el expert who writes about el who is asked by inspectors because that feels like a needle in a haystack to me so i I reproduce a bit of that and discuss it in in the book but you can just go straight to his blog which is el in the daylight which i I thoroughly recommend um so you've got a little bit of insight into what happened in one instance but actually um we, we have to recognize that that for most of us ofsted just can't Going to learn much about EAL unless everyone in your school is is singing it from the rafters.
0: That's it. And whether it's trying to get into everything, you know that everybody does. Um, have you got any other final um sort of advice or um information you'd like to give our listeners that we could end on?
1: Yeah, time? look, I mean, it, it's been a real pleasure. I could I could talk about this, you know, you said all day. I mean, I think I could probably. Yeah, could probably oh, go for a few fantastic. weeks. I mean, I, think I feel really empowered. I hope so. Well. well, that was going to be you know, you asked for closing <laughs> thoughts, and and I guess that would be it. You know, it 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 can be a lonely job sometimes being an EL specialist, or and I say specialist because we have teachers, we have teaching assistants, we we have um, people who identify maybe as school leaders. But if if you want to take this on, and you want to be someone who actually makes a sustained difference um, for, for bilingual pupils, actually for all pupils by developing a specialism in language, Well, I'll call you an EL specialist, whether you feel you're a specialist yet or not, don't worry about it. Fake it till you make it. That's the golden rule. Um, (laughs) if people walked away and felt empowered, that they felt that there was solid research evidence behind them that is accessible to them, that there's a community out there to be part of, um, that you can ride out the storms of whatever today's minister has come up with um, and and actually know that you're making an incredible difference to those pupils and that this can be, it can be a really rewarding focus for a whole career, that there, there is great depth of specialism out there, but it's accessible right from the beginning, then then I'd, I'd be a very happy academic. I'd feel like the, the kind of research and work we do in universities, had actually found a home with people who could use it and and that's the goal for me to to try and put evidence at the service of practice uh, the other thing says of course do get in touch join now join your local group drop me an email um i would be i'd be delighted to hear from people and and to, to maybe talk through some of the issues that you're facing or go on the twinkle facebook group because it sounds like that's a great place to be
0: that's it yeah well um i will add in any so your email address any other websites and um, books that you recommend i will add all that into the uh, information that's underneath the podcast so if anybody is looking um for more information but i feel completely empowered today i feel like i'm having a really good day now
1: <laughs> well thanks and thanks also for the work that twinkler are doing i, I think just putting resources out there for people is just so important and and you know i know it making a real difference
0: that's it and it'll be um really interesting to continue working together and um you know, fighting, um, be really good. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for a brilliant chat. Really enjoyed it. Um, thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Helen Bodell from Twinkle EAL. We have over 650,000 resources and you can find all of our EAL resources at www.twinkle.co.uk. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest by searching for Twinkle EAL. All other information and links will be found in the episode notes below.